Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. Spreading inspiring stories around the world, that's my mission, and I love it. There is no shortage of women doing great things with their lives. They're your mother, your sister, your next door neighbor, your colleague, your best friend. And they do what they do because they love it or because they see a need. The point is that these women are everywhere. And if you know someone I should feature on the show, I'd love to hear about her. Just shoot me an email, candy at candyoterry.com or message me at candyoterry at story behind her success. Truth be told, I have known the woman that you are about to meet for about four years. She fascinates me because she's so good at so many things. It's kind of hard to describe her, but I'm going to give it a try. She's an award-winning writer, a speaker, a consultant, and a very successful TED Talker. She's a former radio host, a stand-up comedian, and she's a brand advisor. She's even been called a creative genius. Her latest chapter in a career that just keeps on unfolding is to help businesses sound like humans and help humans sound like people. Intriguing? I think so. Terry Trespiccio, welcome to the story behind her success. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. You here we are. We're in my studio. We're You're here. At my house. I'm where the magic the happens. <laughs> yes. All right. So let's jump into Candio's lightning round. This is the way our audience gets to know you quickly. I've got five questions. You're going to give me your short answers. Don't overthink it. Are you ready? Yes. My best friend says I'm crazy. <laughs> Never would I ever. Go bungee jumping. Your pet peeve is? I am incredibly impatient. And your hidden talent would be? Hidden talent? Oh, my God. Oh, you told me not to overthink it. What if there's nothing in there? Maybe nothing is there. Maybe I have nothing hidden anymore. I put it all on the outside. You hear this song and you crank it up. Greatest Showman. All right. There you go. Love it. That gets me so pumped up. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview. You've come home to Boston. The question is, have you called your mother? Have you seen your mother? What I did was told my mother the excuse and the truth about why I can't see her, why I'm here. And I'm very sorry. It's a very busy <laughs> thing. I said, Mom, you're coming to Boston. Mom, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to see you this time. No, I have not. But I stay in touch with her almost every day. That was kind of mean for me to start with. That. That's all right. You know, she knows. I'm a mother and I can't help <laughs> Have it, you, you know? called your mother? I cannot believe you were only 10 miles away from I me. I know, I know. Lightning round. Do you love your mother? Answer that question. Do you love your mother? No, of course. There you go. More than life itself. I am not the same person, Terry, that I was four years ago when we had an interview together. And that's because my goals and, and my dreams have taken me to where I am right now. So I guess my first question to you is, do you believe in chapters in our lives? I think we are even smaller than chapters. I think it's scene by scene by scene. Anyone who thinks they're going to now start living their life is biting off a lot. And I think it's a lot to ask of anyone. I think we live every scene and those scenes, they do become chapters, but we only know where the chapters begin and end looking back. You say, I can help you find your thing. Let's start with that. What does that mean? I do not purport that I can figure out what you are supposed to be doing. That would be nutty to even assume that I knew that. But what I help do, and okay, I've just re realized my, my hidden talent is, is no longer hidden. It's I can listen to someone in very short order, help them 
gain some clarity around what they're saying and how to figure out where that could apply in their lives. So people know what they like to do and what they don't like to do. But when they have a hard time, when they say to me, I just don't know what I do, it's usually because they can't see it. They're too far in it. So what I am good at doing is seeing something from outside of it and offering some really clear perspective and articulating that thing for them. That's you, why people pay me. You just <laughs> shared an incredible video with me before we got started. It's about, quote unquote, the intensive, which I guess is a retreat. In this particular yes. video, it featured women focused on gateless learning. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And actually, that video only featured women, but it's certainly not just for women, just that, let's face it, who's going on more retreats? Usually women. Uh, a lot of my work lately has gone from writing to branding to now what it's really calling to me about is creative leadership and helping people tap their creativity is not just a nice to have or a hobby. It's not just like, hey, I put ships in bottles on weekends. This is about how do I tap my creative genius so I can be better at the things I want to do, whether that's leading an organization, running your own thing, being a better parent, whatever it is, our creativity is an untapped resource often. I do lots of different things in lots of different ways, uh, different kinds of events and workshops and whatever to help people tap that. The intensive is the highest offering of that I have, where I take a small group of people, we go away into a really cozy locale, away from our lives, and we actually write. Now, they're not all writers, though. What's really critical here is that we use writing as a tool, which is what it is. It's not a major. It's a sacred tool for accessing our stories and our ideas. And when you can do that, when you can quiet everything else, you can actually hear what that voice has to say. You asked me about gateless. Gateless methodology is not something I created. It was created by a woman named Suzanne Kingsbury. She's a best-selling author. She's a developmental editor. And she's a Fulbright scholar who studied the intersection of neuroscience, Zen Buddhism, and art, namely literary art. She said, how do we get in that zone? Where are our brains most primed for creating and accessing genius? How do people do that? And through her study, she understood that the place where that is is where the critic has been barked back so that we are not forever measuring, comparing. That mentality shuts down the creative very quickly. And so the gateless methodology is one in which I'm trained in it. I've also seen the benefits of it in my own life and I've watched it transform others is a way of helping us externalize and look at each other's creative work and ideas and stories with a positive regard, with no criticism, no fixing, no judging, nothing like that. Because the minute I go, well, I like this candy, but you know what you could have done? You're done. You're not listening to me anymore. And we have made a big mistake in our own culture of prioritizing fixing and flaw finding low finding. The intensive just one of the offerings, but it's a way to access that flow. I was watching the looks on the women's faces in the video, and it felt like because they were removed from their normal environment, they were able to finally quiet their mind enough to hear their ideas. Sometimes I feel as if I have all six cylinders are all going, <laughs> right? And I'm just hopping from one burner to the next because I just have stuff to do all day. It's fun and it feels better to put things out quickly because I can solve that problem, that problem. If you're going to go deep and really figure out what you're about, that's some heavy lifting. It's easier to put that off, but it's rewarding, far more rewarding to get into it. But the clutter of our life gets in the way. And so we don't get into it. But if we did, some major things can happen. You're almost like a plate spinner, I think. You know, woo, you know how you can spin lots of plates in yeah. the air and catch them all? Walk me through your day. 
well, I start with one plate and I add 80 plates. No, (laughs) I say, what is the best use of my energy at what point of the day? Because if I get into minutia and admin stuff first thing when I'm feeling really fresh, yeah, I'll get stuff done. But by the time it's time to do more heavy lifting, I'll be too tired. So in the morning, I try to make use of that very narrow, bright window where I can do something that requires heavier lifting, writing to people I really need to connect with, writing an email, working on a project, working on a talk, something that is that I will feel great, as you say, signing my name on that day if I get that thing done. So I try to lean into that and not go serving other fires too soon. I don't book any calls before 10 a.m. if I can help it so that I can deal with my stuff first and then I can open up to serving other people. I love that answer. And I've tried so hard. You know, I'll do my to-do list. Usually that's what I do when I first wake up. And my problem has been, and now I'm going to take your advice, is I get stuck in the minutiae too early in the morning. Ah. And then I am paralyzed by serving too many masters. I really am. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to take your advice. Okay. I'd like to go into a little bit of a time machine sure. because I want people to kind of know how you got to where you are today. I grew up in New Jersey, a little town called Roseland. I grew up the oldest of three girls. My father was an anesthesiologist. He's retired now. My mother was a nurse. That's where they met. And then my mother became, you know, stay, basically stayed at home with us after I was born. You grew up in a town called Roseland. Roseland. And you, and you get to have your mom stay home with you too. What yes. Was it, what was it she like was running in your the house? billing business in the house. So she worked from home in a way, but it was nice to have her there. What was it like yeah. with three girls? Yeah. Oh, please. It's hard being in charge. That's what I was. <laughs> I felt like I was in charge of everything, running the ship. Were you uh, the oldest? Happy, I'm the oldest. Yeah. Three girls. Yeah, three years apart each. Did and you play I sports? I did not. I begrudgingly played some softball. I really hated that. I ultimately got into dance in high school, and I probably would have benefited from starting that earlier. But I didn't like competitive sports. It made me very uncomfortable, um, nervous, and you know, I had a lot of dental work. My mother was afraid I'd knock it all out. <laughs> you came to Boston to attend Boston College, which is mm-hmm. something that you and I have in yes. common. Tell me a little bit about your experience at Boston College. It was exactly what I needed at that point. You know, I was a total nerd. I did homework all the time. I was totally like, I think, still think high school was the hardest academically. Boston College was the perfect place for me because it was this idyllic setting. And, and I felt like I really got to do what I was good at and got, I was cultivated to be able to pay attention and dig in to great thinkers and great writers. And it really opened me up as an adult to see adult perspectives. Did you know what you wanted to do when you were at Boston College? Of course not. No way. In fact, I dreaded it senior year. I wouldn't talk about it. What are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I don't want to think about it. I was absolutely stricken by the idea of leaving. I knew I wanted to be a writer, but when there's like, well, you should apply to newspapers and magazines, I said, no way. They wouldn't want me. In fact, I didn't apply to an actual job until over a year after I left. I just could not mentally. I had a very difficult time adjusting to college because it was very homesick and then just as hard time adjusting out. I think that's a rough time. Were you afraid of growing up? I didn't think anyone needed or would want me. Why would anyone want me? And they said, well, you could go, you know, when you're right at college, you get a job entry level. I said, but there's people who are better than me at that. Why would anyone want me to do anything? Why do you think you doubted yourself like that? I can't point my finger to anyone but myself. I had a very active critic. When I talk about the critical mind, mine ran my life. That critic has since been demoted and is sorting mail in the back. (laughs) Um, But I really, really believed that it would be too hard for me to learn anything of value and too hard for me to be a contributor in any way. I don't know why. I did well. I got good grades. I won a grant for writing. I still was absolutely terrified. 
I wonder if you've used some of that energy when you're consulting. I know how that feels to be paralyzed. I know how that feels not to be able to find what you really want to do yet. Oh, absolutely. I heard one of your first jobs was writing for a wig catalog, and I have to ask you about that. Well, my first job job out of school was being an office assistant. That's how I learned my way around an office. And then went back to school at Emerson College, also in Boston, for my MFA in creative writing. Poetry was my thesis. So I really was a poet, you know, real great job application there. You're a poet and you know it. What do you do? What do you do with a poetry degree? (laughs) Turns out a lot. And I say to this day, I'm I'm one of the best paid poets in the country because, no, I'm I'm not publishing poetry right now. But I went on to have a series of jobs that let me work with words. I got a job as an entry-level copywriter at North America's largest distributor of wigs and hair pieces for women. And that's where I worked for just under two years. And I can tell you everything about wefting. I can tell you about a lot of things. I helped name one of the technologies they use in wigs now. That was really crazy that I had that experience. My dad used to say to me, Candace, we learn something with every job we do. Mm -hmm. What did you learn at the wig place? I learned that what you write about or what the subject is does not matter. That it is our job to make something compelling. We might laugh about wigs, but someone out there is really anxious for their new wig to come in the mail and really self-conscious about having to use one. No matter what the audience is, your job is to be creative in a way that compels someone to trust and buy from you. And that has served me all the way up. You landed a job working for Martha Stewart. Can you tell us about what that experience was like? I did work for Martha Stewart for years, but when I landed the job, Martha Stewart didn't own it yet. Even at that age, at the time I got my first job in publishing, I was 30 already. I applied to one of the few consumer publications left in the Boston area. It was called Body and Soul. It used to be the New Age Journal. Back in the day, super hippie magazine, and this stuff was starting to become mainstream. They rebranded as Body and Soul. I went in there knowing that every editor in the Boston area wanted that job. I said, there's no way I'm qualified for this, but I'm trying for it. And I went into the interview and I said, I know. I said, elephant in the room. I know there's a lot of people who are qualified for this role who could get it over me. What do you need me to do to show you that I could do the job? And they said, well, why don't you write up a book review about these books? Or why don't you? I just kept asking for opportunities to show them. They brought me in for like my third interview. I was like, all right, people, let's make a decision. And I said, look, that, we know that I don't have the experience. So what's the deal? And they said, we really just like your energy. And let me tell you, Candy, that has gotten me every gig, every job. They just wanted you around. That's part of the job. I wasn't the best editor in Boston. I was a beginner. I learned how to do it, but they were willing to teach me because they didn't mind having me around. To this day, I believe that is how I get work because people don't mind having me around. You know, you're reminding me about my very first interview at Magic 106.7. It lasted three hours. Oh, And when I got hired, which was as an assistant to the program director, he said those exact words. I kind of wanted you to be around. I I like your energy. Yeah. I don't want to hang around with someone who annoys me. (laughs) Right. Work is like an arranged marriage. Yes, it is. You go on one interview and then you're together every day. They are skimming for that. Forget the LinkedIn profile stuff. Of course that matters. But what the real bar is, do they want you around? So tell me how that turned into Martha Stewart. Six months after I was working there and struggling because I was new to this whole world and learning this business, the news came in that the publisher had successfully pulled off a wonderful sale of selling this magazine to Martha Stewart. The company bought it. We were able to stay there for several years while they 
paid our bills, zhuzhed us up a little bit, made it nicer, right? All these things. And then years later, I was like, what's going to happen? This thing's going to move to New York. I know it is. And you don't usually bring editors to New York. It's like bringing sand to the beach, you know? So There's I was lots waiting. Of there, right? Lots of editors there. Yeah. So when it finally came around, the rumors, I like, think this thing's going to move. It's going to move. And the announcement came in. Before it was announced, I called the New York office and said, I know you can't say this, but if the magazine were moving to New York, could I come? And they said, well, we are not able to make any confirm or deny, but so you would be willing to move. Is that what you're saying? I said, yes. And they said, okay, we'll just stand by. And then the new editor came up and interviewed everyone who wanted to take their job in New York. She came in to meet me because I knew it was not a guarantee that we would get to go. And she said, I've heard a lot of great things about you. And uh, I think it'd be really great. Really like your energy. Would love you to come to New York. They laid everyone off at that magazine but me. It's not because I'm the best editor. This has nothing to do with that. They were like, she's a time capsule, probably because I was pretty cheap. Bring her down. It's cool. She'll be the rootstock that we now graft a new publication off of. And they hired a completely new staff. I moved to New York, and that's history. I hear a gutsiness about this story that you didn't have oh my when God. you were in college. Didn't have my whole life. I am an absolute nervous, anxiety-ridden, um, insecure. I compare things. I do all the things that everyone says you shouldn't do because we all have that in us. I have developed gutsy over time. I'm a late bloomer. What did you learn from Martha Stewart? I know you worked directly with and for her. What was the biggest lesson she taught you? Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Elmazian, president of TechHelpBoston, with the reasons why. It's really about forging a relationship and having a trusting relationship because your technology is very personal to you. It used to be in the old days that things were private. When you're online, nothing is private anymore. And we want to make sure that that information is kept confidential and with somebody that you trust and you feel comfortable with. You can trust TechHelpBoston to keep your computer and systems running right. Call 781-484-1265 or visit techhelpboston.com. That's techhelpboston.com. Well, the good thing is I, I got to do her show. That's how I got to, I got to work with her in public where people are watching. That's the best way because then everyone's on their best behavior. She's tough and I admired her for that. Her goal was to make something great. It wasn't to make nice, make sure everyone likes everyone. She really doesn't care about that. And yeah, some people said things that they didn't like her. She made them upset, whatever. But I got to fly in and out of there regularly, but she, I wasn't in her purview very long. But I admired her tremendously. And if I saw her right now at a restaurant in New York, I would just go up and hug her. I just would, because she gave me a pretty nice opportunity there. And she was always grateful to her editors. You also had a chance to work on the radio. You were, you were doing a show for Sirius Radio under the Martha Stewart That's right. umbrella. May it rest in peace, that channel. But yeah, I didn't have any job. I'm not like you. I didn't come up through traditional broadcast. What was it like for you? And, and I was scared out of my mind. They said, here's a headphone. Here's a mic. Ready? Five, four, three. I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> What's about to happen? I said, something about this feels right. Even though I didn't have the training and I knew they weren't going to hire professional broadcast. They just, let's just see what this person does. Do you think it's true that by being brave, we just learn so much learn more right you outside your comfort there's zone? There's no such thing as there's only on the job training. Unless you're a doctor, you should know how to cut out a heart before you get in there with the rubber gloves. But for the rest of us, we learn it as we do it. You know, the, the loss of that job was a pivotal time in your life. And you talk about it in uh, one of your TED Talks about passion, which, by the way, has over five million views. It's pretty. Exciting. So congratulations Thank on you. that. 
But one day, the Martha Stewart job went away, and then the radio job went away, and you were devastated. I was like really ready for something new, but I didn't know who I was outside of it. Like anyone, you're used to, you're proud of that job title. I loved walking part. Oh, this is Terry. She's an editor. She's a, it was a cool job. And we didn't have it. I was like, am I just not cool anymore? And then what happened? Then I started to say, you still have to live and you still want to live in this city. So you better find a way to pay for it. And so I was like, hey, who needs what over here? I just started doing whatever people need. I just started running the business. I didn't have a business plan. I just said, Okay, you need some writing. What do you need? What do you need? And I learned it as I did it. Now it's been eight years. You know, one of my favorite expressions, and it's part of the 16 life lessons, is it's not what happens to you in life, it's how you handle it. Isn't that so true? Because the world doesn't care if you've found adversity and you're, you know, you're stopped for a moment because it just keeps on spinning. The needs are still there. And just because I didn't have the title of magazine editor, writer, or radio host didn't mean I didn't have those skills. And those skills are transferable. I said, okay, I'm not writing for this magazine, but someone needs something written. I'm going to find those people. And if you can find the need and apply the skill you don't mind using and improving to help meet that need, you're home run. I never looked back. I only went up from there. One of the things that I want to take a minute to talk about is, and I'm sure everyone's already noticing this, is you're funny, okay? You've got great energy and you're funny. And lo and behold, you're also a stand-up comedian. I remember there's, there's a quote, and I have it here. Jerry Seinfeld says, mm. acting is a piece of cake. Walking on a wire is a piece of cake. Stand-up is hard. <laughs> what do you love about being a stand-up comedian? Oh my gosh, I love it. Because it feels it, very slice of life to me. Oh my gosh. And people are all terrified as they should be. Because you get up there, no one's impressed with your LinkedIn profile, your resume. No one cares what you've done. There's only you and a mic and a group of people. And they're like, go ahead. What do you have to say? It is so stripped down, right? There's no other preamble. They're not also here for the free breakfast or you're going to do a breakout session. It is so different. But let me tell you, I've always been me. I didn't, learning stand-up comedy as a skill didn't change who I was naturally, but it did give me tools for sharpening it. Because people also always used to say, what do you do? You should do comedy. I was like, no, 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 no. That's hard. That's not for me. I could never do it. I didn't get into doing it until I was over 40. Then I said, hey, maybe I'll take a real class and figure it out. And then I went in there and realized, oh, we're all terrible. That's a good place to start. <laughs> and realized that we were all bad. And I had a teacher who said, you don't need to be funny to be a comic. You need to know how to craft a joke. How do you craft it? What makes people laugh? It's a skill. He said, so take that out of your head that you have to be something special, the class clown, something important. You don't. You just have to have the guts to get up there. Do you have to be a good observer of human nature? For sure. But you can observe something and not know how to articulate why it's interesting. And that's the skill. Jerry Seinfeld's been doing this for 40 years. He writes every day, as we all know, right? Comedy is not how I make my living, right? It's fun. I don't do it all the time. I certainly really admire the people who do. I do not think that's easy at all. By the way, we haven't spelled out your name yet. So spell oh. out your name so everybody can Google you. Oh, I know. It's a doozy. You. It's, it's a, doozy. a doozy. Here it comes. If you, well, if you Google stop searching for your passion, it comes up. It's, that's the title of the talk and you'll see my name, but it's Terry, T-E-R-R-I. And the last name is Trispicio, T-R-E-S-P-I-C-I-O. And that's also the name of the website as well. Yeah, so just you my can name. find out. Yeah. Google knows when you try typing in, you do it wrong. Google says, do you mean this girl? Because we keep getting requests for that. Trespicio. That's right. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that there's some really good tasting Italian food it's that happens Italian. on your table. What is it? It's Filipino. 
cool. My dad's Filipino. I am part Italian, but my dad, whose name it is, came from the Philippines when he was 30. Let's go back to uh, your TED Talk. First of all, the reason why I wanted to chat a little bit about your stand-up comedy is Uh. because of your energy and because of your ability to put a little joke in there, I found your TED Talk to be so entertaining on top of being informative. Is that the key to a successful TED Talk? Oh, yes. And well, actually, there's so much. That's the key to comedy is does it help sort of leaven the bread of whatever you're saying, right? Does it give it a lift? In terms of TED, I will say this. There are some TED Talks that are just direly serious, right? Like they're so heavy and serious and they're fantastic and some are really light. So there is no one formula for TED. I will say that. But when people say to me, I want to do a TED talk, but they're always so funny. How do I be funny? I say, you don't have to be funny. The reason TED talks in particular can be funny is because they're usually people being very honest and we laugh as a way to connect. So usually people aren't doing jokes. If someone gets up to does a TED talk and there's jokes built in, we feel we're being played. The reason people like that TED talk is not just that the idea is, you know, it moves them because they go, oh, thank God I'm not the only one who was stuck on their passion. But they also see the humor as a way to connect. They feel like, oh, I understand them. I understand them and they understand me. Let's talk a little bit about the passion piece, because you say passion is not a plan. It's a feeling. It is the fire that ignites when you rub sticks together. Terry, I have to say, I think that is one of the best definitions of passion I've ever heard. Thank you. Tell us about the talk. The talk... Well, I'd always want to give a TED Talk, and I figured, again, I had an attack of the critic, and I said, oh, you're not important enough. You haven't had anything special to say. Nothing amazing's ever happened to you. You haven't done anything. You're not famous. Next. And then there's got to be, there's more and more people giving these talks. What are they about? Someone at a TED event canceled a month before the event. This is the biggest TEDx in the country. Someone I don't even know who knows me on Facebook said, hey, you should apply for this. There's an opening. Just let me know. I'll put you in touch with the guy. Talk to the guy. And he's like, all right, what's your idea? What now? Because I'm sure he was hit with a million people. And I said, well, I have a few things that bug me because that's usually how I figure things out. I said, this idea of passion's always bugged me. He goes, hmm, why? That's interesting. And we got into a conversation about it. He goes, I'd like to see where this goes. Why don't you write up some ideas and we'll talk tomorrow? I talked to him every day that week. At the end of the week, I said, uh, Mike, I got to know, do I need to buy a plane ticket? What is happening here? Am I in? Am I out? I have no idea. He goes, yeah, you're in. I just wanted to make sure that there was something there. So the key to a TED Talk is, and this is not just me saying it, it's Chris Anderson, who is the head of all of TED, right? The key is to have an idea. Well, of course, it's called ideas worth spreading, right? It's not just, did I live through something hard? Am I funny? I'm entertaining. It's not about me at all. It has to speak to the person and an idea that changes the way the viewer sees something. So there's a lot of people who have talks on passion. I'm in lists of people who also did TED Talks on passion. But did you change the way I saw something? If you've done that, it's not like handing someone a plant. It's like helping them plant the seed to a new idea in their brain. Then they feel they own the idea. So there's a lot more to a TEDx than the entertainment value or being inspiring. I'm very careful not to, I don't don't set out to inspire. I set out to share something that bugged me that I figured out for myself. And then people agreed. You have said many times there are millions of brand advisors out there. Tons. What makes you different? Well, brand advisor means nothing. That's what makes it different. It's just a hat everyone puts on. There are people who are brand advisors who are marketing professionals, corporate marketing. There are brand advisors who are designers and graphic designers and great with visuals. 
It's a term that everyone uses to say that we're good at helping someone else represent what they do. The difference for me and what I tell people, because I am often pitching myself to big companies who hire me for a lot to do this work. And I say, yes, but I'm not a marketing person. I'm not a marketing executive. I didn't come up through corporate. I'm not going to do what's safe. And I'm not going to do what everyone else does. You have on your hands an angry poet. And I'm going to use that perspective to challenge some ideas and say something that you feel but might never articulate yourself. And everyone I've worked with has said, holy cow, like that's something we couldn't have done. And it's not about, well, how are we going to market this and sell to me? That bores me to tears. I want the DNA. I want to help work on the thing that is standard about you. That is the thing that I do well. You also said you create your life by living it. Can you talk a little about that? Well, I think my mother should really get credit for that because she was the one I went to when I felt really just stultified by the idea of going out and making a life. And I said, but I need to know what I'm supposed to do first. And I don't know what I want to do. And I don't know. And she said, just get a job. (laughs) She was like, then you'll meet people. Then you'll have another idea. And then you'll see what you like and don't like. But I was thinking I had to have it all figured out before I did anything. And I was so depressed and anxious over this idea that now that I'm past that, I say, God, can I relieve someone of that? That's what this talks about. Can I relieve someone of the idea they have to have it all figured out? Because if there's something I know now that is the great relief is that no one knows. We are all trying to figure it out. And if you think someone else has the answer, you're wrong. We just have different ideas about a thing. Are you ever too old to figure it out or ever too old to no. make a dream come true? I wasn't until I was 30 till I got a job I liked that really felt I was going somewhere. It wasn't until I was over 40 that I started doing stand-up, landed my first big talk, started playing touch football. I didn't start till over, I was over 40, and now I'm a one hell of a receiver, you should see. Wow, a lot of my life didn't start till I was over 40. I don't listen to those things. Because if you worry about age and you say, I'm too old to do this, I'm too old to that, you're looking for an excuse to continue not doing what you want. And I don't like those excuses, and I don't have time for them in my life, and you shouldn't have time for them in yours. You know, I always try to talk to some of the women that listen to our program, live in countries where women don't have the same rights that you and I do. We're very lucky. What do you say to them? To people who are in war-torn country? I mean, like, yes, I get a lot of emails, interestingly, from people in India write to me. And they say, and actually what's interesting is they're not saying, hey, I'm dodging bullets over here, which I do. They're saying, you know, my family puts a lot of pressure on me to be the provider And I feel like I should know what my passion is. And you've changed that. Yes, I have had a whole world of advantages in my favor to be able to live the life I have and the work I do. I have no, uh, there's no, make no mistake about that. I'm very aware of it. But what I can say is your life takes on meaning when you can find a problem that you can solve in a way that thrills you to solve it. And any place in the world needs that. And when you can do that, it feels great. That's why when I, look for charities and places where I can make a difference or devote time or money. It's places where they are very serious about having women be educated and become business owners. Because I think the biggest problem is when women do not have a means of their own. And if I could do, if I had one wish, of course, I don't want anyone to go hungry. Second after that is I don't want women dependent on anyone to be able to support themselves. They must be able to make their way in the world. We cannot make the changes if we cannot be breadwinners, essentially and make sure that we provide. We can't lead without that. You don't know what could happen. You do not know. People fall in love. They fall out of love. Things happen. Great things happen. Bad things happen. Now, realize I am not married. I've never been married, and I don't have any particular interest in marriage. 
doesn't mean I'm not interested in love. Doesn't mean I'm not interested in relationships. But I happen to be single and I get to move around and do what I want, which has its own perks. And I don't have children, which has also not have been a goal of mine. So I have a particular extra freedom there, which I think allows me then to reach more people. But also, you don't have to have my lifestyle to be able to do things of meaning. That would be my wish, would be like, yeah, I could fall in love tomorrow. I'd like to see that happen. That would be very exciting. But it doesn't mean I would decide not to advocate for myself ever. Cannot give that up. That sovereignty. We can't afford it. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? One of the people who had the biggest impact on me in my life was my uncle Bob, Reverend Robert Barone, who taught at the University of Scranton his entire life and died years ago now, but he's very alive to me in my mind. And he said, you know, you can do anything you want. You don't have to do what everyone else is doing. I said, I don't wait. I don't. Like in my 20s, I don't have to do these things that everyone's doing. No, you can actually do whatever you want. And this was a priest. And he also said, don't waste time being angry at people. It's really a waste of time. What do you say to somebody who's listening to this program today and they're stuck? How do you get unstuck? Well, another expert I really love a lot is Mel Robbins. And she says, you know, her book, The Five Second Rule, she says, stop thinking. Stop. The endless ruminating is not your friend because it's usually you kind of rolling around with your critic and figuring out ways you can't do things. Get out and do something, anything. Like your mom said, go get a go job. Go do it. Go get a job. <laughs> get a job. Find a way to connect and give to someone else. I believe some kind of service is what pulls us out of ourselves. And I don't need, mean soup kitchen service, but we have to find a way to connect with other people or we will be caught up in our own stuff. I handed you my 16 life lessons. I'm wondering if you can tell me, is there one that really resonates for you a little bit? I mean, these are words of wisdom from 600 women who've sat down and yep. talked to me. What do you say? I really love this one. Number nine, don't just show up, stand out. We've been taught, I will say women in particular, there's been a, there's an inherent and almost primal threat. If you stand out, you're singled out, you could be targeted, you could be hurt, you, lots of bad things. Women who stand out have, uh, have untold histories of misery for doing that. But yet, the ones who succeed, there is a fear that if we stand out, we'll get hurt. If you don't stand out, you have everything to lose. So I would say it's not just enough. Showing up's a big part of it. But don't be afraid to make an impact, even if someone doesn't like you as a result. We have to be okay with that. Let's flash forward five years from now, 10 years from now. What's next for you? Is there something on your list you want to make sure you do or experience yes, in life? Yes, well, I just finished my first book proposal for a book I've been working on for years, have sent it out to the first agent, and I'm now sitting here waiting. I would like to say that five years from now, I don't only have that book published, but I'm on my way to being you know, done with the next one. My whole life as a writer, I have not published a book. This is important to me now. Every book author that I've ever interviewed says, you have no idea how it feels to hold your book in your hand. I hope I'd like to know what that feels like. I hope like. that happens for you. Me too. What does success mean to you? Success means calling my own shot. I've always prized that very heavily. I get very threatened when I feel I don't have control. Now, that might be a problem I should address, my control freak nature, but success is not getting someone to pay you. That's called doing a job. Success is being able to turn down work you don't want. And so to me, success isn't how much you have, but how much you don't need. I know that if I can call my own shots and decide I will work with this person, I will not work with this person, I am now successful. That's the measure for me. 
Terry Trespiccio. I want to say thank you so much for thank being you. our guest today on the story behind her success. Much success to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?